Hello, I'm Kevin Barrett, and I can tell you that this is not the end of the radio show. It's only the beginning. But it is the end of summer, as you can probably tell from the cicadas in the background. And it may be the end times. And that's what I'm going to be discussing in this dialogue with Adam Green of No More News. The subject of eschatology, the science of the end times, and specifically the millenarian messianic eschatologies involved in the world takeover plot by, who is it, the Illuminati, uh, Chabad Lubavitch? Well, listen and make up your own mind, as you always do here at Truth Jihad Radio. Please do subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio by going to kevinbarrett.substack.com or you can always just go to truthjihad.com and click on the subscribe at Substack link. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to No More News Live. I am your host, Adam Green. Thank you for joining me today, Monday, August 22nd, 2022. Got a jam-packed show for you guys today. Joining me is Dr. Kevin Barrett. He had me on his show, False Flag Weekly News, a couple weeks ago to discuss uh, some of my recent work about the Abrahamic conspiracy. We discussed this video I put out a couple weeks ago, and then he followed it up with a blog, which made its way onto the UNS review. So we're going to be discussing that. He is a, a former professor, and I've been watching him for many years on the topics of false flags and 9-11 truth and Zionist power and other things. He is a Muslim, so he will be bringing the Muslim perspective to this discussion on the Bible and the Abrahamic faiths. Thank you for being here, Dr. Kevin Barrett. Hey, it's good to be back with you, Adam. Yes, uh, I pr I've always appreciated you for always having the courage to have me on to discuss my controversial uh, ideas and, and information. So you just had me on a couple weeks ago. We had a really good talk. People can see the first talk for themselves. I believe you have it linked here uh, in the UNS Review article. And I'm just curious because so many of the, the comments here were similar to what you said to me in the show. Did you have this stuff written beforehand or did you write this after our talk? Uh, well, I uh, partially transcribed the talk, and so use, I used some of that in the write-up, as I recall. Oh, okay. That, that makes sense, then. Uh, you did tell me when we were discussing uh, this idea, you said, do you have anything written? Where can I read something about this? You said, do you like to you know, have things in written form? And I said, oh, I usually do videos and presentations, so we're uh, going to make the best of both worlds, I guess, today. Yeah, well, you know, actually transcribing some of these talks is probably not a bad idea because sometimes some really good stuff gets said and it's easier to subject it to critical reflection if it's just sitting there visually on a page somewhere where you can go back at it and kind of chew it over. So that's that's one reason that I'm kind of print oriented. Um, but, you know, everybody's got a different way of learning. So I've said this before. I, th I believe I've had you on. This is maybe like the second or, or third time, I, maybe fourth. I can't remember. I've been on your show a few times as well. 
And uh, I, I believe I told you this before, this story, but years ago, years ago, before I had my YouTube channel, I was uh, listening to some of your podcasts, and it was one podcast you did in particular with uh, James Tracy, who was another professor, and you guys were talking about conspiracy theory and the weaponized CIA term conspiracy theory, and that was actually like the video that motivated me to make my first uh, crack, take my first crack at a documentary and start my YouTube channel. So, in a in an indirect way, there you you uh, help me get on the internet and start uh, talking about this sort of thing. Well, that's great. Yeah, we we obviously need more quote unquote conspiracy theories, meaning points of view that the CIA needs to try to smear, or not just the CIA, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, although, frankly, I think your Abrahamic uh, theory may be getting a little a little broad, but we we do need uh, that. But that, that avenue of inquiry is actually, it's really fruitful uh, and interesting and provocative, and hardly anybody else is willing to go there. So even though I don't agree with you about the Abrahamic part, I'm glad that you're going there. Yes, it's a, definitely an interesting combo. And, and we'll get there to a second. Uh, you'll get there in a second. But I, I just wanted to share this because, you, you know, I first learned of you, uh, seeing you years ago, back in 2006, when you, you took on the top newscaster in the world at the time. Like um, terrorism. You took on all, all the tops on Fox News. Hannity and Combs, you were brought on. Professor teaching 9-11 conspiracy theories. And uh, Hannity had a meltdown. You also had uh, impact segment tonight. You may remember University. This guy, uh, Bill O'Reilly, tried to go after you and smear you. And um, was was this part of the campaign that got you fired? Was it this Fox News material? Yeah, I mean, that's the only reason they brought me on Fox News was this was the beginning of a sort of official pushback against the Scholars for 9-11 Truth Group, which had begun right about at the beginning of 2006 and was up to maybe 100 professors who were all calling out the 9-11 false flag. And they'd been trying to ignore that, that is the media and uh, the, the politicians and so on had been trying to ignore 9-11 Truth and hope it would go away. And then at this point, they could see it wasn't going away. They were going to have to push back. So they made me their whipping boy. Uh, I was the horrible example of what might happen to you, Mr. Professor, if you dare speak out about this topic. And they assume that most professors don't really want to be dragged on Fox News and harassed and defamed and have their uh, careers hampered. Uh, I personally didn't mind that much. (laughs) I guess I'm a weirdo. But yeah, it was a very interesting uh, 15 minutes of fame that, that strung out for about six months. And I'm just curious, how nervous were you to go up against the top newscasters uh, in the country at the time? Well, I was actually really happy to do it because I'd been desperately trying to get some publicity for 9-11 Truth for a few years before that. And so here was my chance, and I was going to take it. And I didn't really know that much about these Fox guys. Like, I hardly even knew who Hannity was. I've never been much of a consumer of mainstream TV news. So when I sat there debating Hannity, I couldn't see him, by the way. they put It was a really weird setup in the Fox studio in Milwaukee. They put me up on this chair way up high. Like I had to climb up on a platform and be sitting on a platform like six or eight feet above everybody else in the room. And then I had to sit there and sort of stare straight ahead at the camera. But I couldn't see who I was talking to. So all I got was the audio. So it was, uh, I think they designed that setup to try to make it difficult. Um, uh, happy to get a chance to to say these things uh, to a large audience, and so I just went with it. 
Yeah. Did you do much uh, like preparation? Did you have like scripted notes on on what you wanted to say and points you wanted to make? No, not at all. Because the problem is, if you try that, then they take it in some other direction, and then you get all you know freaked out. So I, I've found that it's a lot better to try to just be spontaneous and really focus on what the other person is saying. Uh, and that works whether you're talking to a moron like you know, Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity, or you're talking to somebody who's got something interesting to say, like Adam Green or whoever. You know, I mean, I, I want to listen to the person I'm talking to and respond to what they're saying in the moment. It's like you know, kind of Zen, right? Be here now. So that's that's how I did those interviews. Cool, interesting. Um, and uh, and I met you once in per- person. I did an interview with you at the 9-11 Film Festival. I don't know if you remember that, but it was just a, a quick uh, me oh, sticking yeah. my camera in your face, basically, and asking you a couple questions. But I, I saw this this week, um, China demolishing unfinished buildings. And, I mean, what it, when you guys see this, these buildings that start to collapse, they knock out a flu- few floors, and then they don't continue to collapse. Play this real quick. These are controlled demolitions here. What I want people to notice, what's your observation from looking at these? And and how does it relate to the Twin Towers in your eyes? Well, the laws of physics uh, tell us that when something that's a building or other structure that's very, very tall, its height is much greater than its width, is going to have a kind of center of gravity such that if these vertical supports are weakened, the only way that it could possibly come straight down through this path of most resistance would be if all of the vertical supports were removed with perfect timing. Uh, And if the timing is off even by a split second, demolition professionals know that what happens is the building tips over sideways. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing here with these Chinese demolitions. Maybe they didn't hire the real pros, the guys who did the towers in Building 7. Uh, So all they were able to do was bring these things down sideways, which is what the building is going to want to do. To get it to come straight down, you've got to just get rid of all vertical support on lots of floors, basically all the way up and down the building every few floors. You've got to have cutter charges uh, take out the columns, which are the vertical support, uh, exactly at the same instant. And again, you're off a split second and the thing's going to tip sideways. Um, so, yeah, it, it really makes you appreciate what Danny Jawenko said. He was Europe's leading controlled demolition expert. And when they showed him Building 7 coming down, he was awed at the professionalism of the guys who took that down. And he said so. And then uh, well, it wasn't very long after that that he died in a mysterious car crash. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, uh, these are what buildings do if you're not a top-level professional taking out all of the vertical support at exactly the same split second. 
I believe in this instance they they wanted to possibly save money on ex- on explosives, and so they only mm-hmm. took out a couple at the bottom so that it would it would tip over. They were fine with these tipping over, but uh, yeah, it's a cheap, a cheap Chinese uh, Walmart demolition company here. Right, it was no necessary to put one on every floor because you know they're all tipping over anyway. But what you notice is notice how the bottom. The bottom floors are taken out and it starts to collapse, but then it starts to slow. It, it, there's a deceleration when you hit each undamaged floor. So all of this weight at the top, even with all of this weight, the bottom floors are taken out. It starts to collapse, it's, it's, it, but then it decelerates, stops, and then goes path of least resistance and falls over. It, we didn't see that on the Twin Towers. Even if you believe that the fire weakened the steel and the collapse started two-thirds or three-fourths up of the way of the building, there's no way that that top section could continue to smash down all the way through all of those you know, 60-something floors of undamaged, cold, hard steel that had a, a redundancy to hold up a tower that was like you know, tw- two, three times the height as the Twin Towers with the strength. So what NIST and... That's the, the science group that did the investigation, the cover-up. NIST and Popular Mechanics, they said, once the steel weakened and the collapse started, it was inevitable that it would collapse. And this very clear, clearly shows you that it's not inevitable at all. And in fact, you should see a deceleration when each new floor hits. You know, it's funny. NIST said it was, quote-unquote, inevitable, but they gave absolutely no description whatsoever of what could possibly have caused that lower three-quarters of the building to just disappear at free-fall acceleration. Mm-hmm. So it, it was completely absurd. 10,000 pages, and they never even explained what happened. All they explained was how, supposedly, uh, tweaking all their parameters absurdly, they could get the top uh, quarter of the building to come down on the bottom three-quarters, uh, but they they couldn't come up with any mechanism for that to make the bottom three quarters go away. So they just waved their hands and said, ah, inevitable, yeah, which is a inevitable. complete joke. Yeah. Right. And I've seen it. You, you probably remember. In fact, I, I created a little playlist years ago, and one of the clips was from these old 9-11 documentaries. There was like a, a scientist who did these little model experiments to show the physics, how, how e- even if you take out a few floors, like the, the collapse slows eventually. Because that's just the way uh, physics works. It ru- it runs out of momentum, and then it should tip over, but we didn't see that. All the way down to the bottom, both buildings in around 10 seconds, which yeah, far too fast yeah. for all that undamaged steel. Yeah, one way to think about it is that the gravitational energy of that top section, as it comes down maybe 10 feet onto the uh, the next, uh, that bottom three quarters of the building, as it hits the intact bottom part of the building, then it, that gravitational energy, some of it has to be used to theory, to try to destroy that bottom section of the building. And so that gravitational energy is no longer available for going down. And so the acceleration downward has to slow and it would massively slow and it would stop and the top section of the building would go sideways as we see in these images. But of course, that's not what happened because somehow all of the columns, both the core columns and the perimeter columns of the trade center were taken out uh, with you know just perfect timing to make it come straight down and and so many witnesses there the bomb started going off floor by floor you just heard boom boom you saw the explosions you saw the clouds everybody thought it all the newscasters said oh somebody must have gotten inside of the building dan rather everybody here here's that clip i was just mentioning 
The complete collapse explanation. Oh, I'm on mute. In a footnote on page 80, their explanation on what caused the complete destruction of the towers does not exist. Within more than 10,000 pages filled with technical data of relative importance, in a footnote on page 82 of the NIST report, we read, The focus of the investigation was on the sequence of events from the instant of aircraft impact to the initiation of collapse for each tower. For brevity of this report, the sequence is referred to as the probable collapse sequence, although it does not actually include the structural behavior of the tower after the conditions for collapse initiation were reached and collapse became inevitable. With the simple word inevitable, NIST purports to have explained the total destruction of 80,000 tons of a perfectly healthy steel structure upon itself. The next three experiments are real-world examples intended to see if, indeed, as NIST simply assumed, a collapse would be inevitable. Will the collapse of these structures continue to accelerate? And is collapse really inevitable? Based on these three real-world examples, an accelerated, straight-down collapse of the structures certainly is not inevitable. The area below the damage zone where the planes flew in and where the fire was, that area below that, those 80 or 90 stories, 80,000 tons of structural steel was not damaged in any way. Yet you stood there and watched it destroy itself wiping out floor by floor all 287 structural columns as if they didn't exist underneath the uh, damage zone. When a well-known debunking website wrote to NIST asking for a clarification on the sequence of the collapses, it received a similar answer. NIST did not describe the specific sequence of events after global collapse initiated. This astonishing statement has been repeated by NIST over and over again under the most surprising of justifications. Once the collapse initiated, the video evidence is rather clear. It, it was not stopped by the floors below, so there was no calculation that we did uh, to demonstrate that, so what is clear from the videos. Wow. That's how bad the explanation was. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling that they uh, got away with this. And the Building 7 NIST report is even more ridiculous than this 10,000-page report on how the towers uh, supposedly reached the point of collapse initiation without telling us how they collapsed. Well, Building 7 report is, is even worse, and, and that one is a complete joke. They, they invented some heretofore uh, unknown physical uh, property. Uh, what, what, what did they call that? Uh, thermal expansion or some kind of expansion that had never existed before and never has existed since. And they claim that somehow this magical process caused the building to just sort of move off of its columns and just come come down, which it's it's really pathetic. And, it, and in a way, it seemed kind of strange that Professor Leroy Halsey at the University of Alaska had to go and do that a very thorough computer model to show how absurd that Building 7 NIST report is because it's it's plainly absurd to anybody who knows middle school physics. Yeah, and, and this isn't the video with the experiments, but people have done smaller models showing how it's it slows down. You drop a bowling ball through planes of glass and it breaks a few and then the bowling ball slows each one and comes to a stop. We saw no deceleration, uh, it, total acceleration. Uh, as if it wasn't even there, which is just impossible. Yeah. And and they didn't explain it. That's the other big point. They go, oh, 
you're debunked because uh, jet fuel can't melt steel beams, like they, even though they're the ones that twisted that whole thing because they were wrong and they were lying. But uh, they didn't explain the total collapse. They just said it was inevitable. Well, you saw the he says you saw the videos. It didn't slow down, so they just don't have to explain it. Ten thousand pages, and they don't explain how the top section could crush the whole building. And they also had to cheat and uh, tweak their numbers wildly uh, and distort things in order to even get to that place where they had the top section falling on the bottom section. To get to that, what they had to do was feed in blatantly absurd numbers. Like they assumed that the uh, plane crashes had supposedly stripped off every single bit of fireproofing from all of the columns uh, within the like however many floors it was that they called the plane crash zone that's absurd the plane crashes couldn't possibly have stripped off more than a small fraction of that fireproofing but of course if they admitted that then they wouldn't get anywhere near their so-called collapse initiation and then they also imagined much hotter and longer burning fires than actually happened uh, based on the actual tests of what steel was left after so much of it was sent off to china to be melted down uh so so that report it, it is just phony from the get-go and again the building seven one is even worse and it's a, a real um just a just it's a mind-boggling fact that the world of science hasn't called this out I mean, in a sense they have thousands of architects and engineers have but it's bizarre that the uh, you know what we read in the media and so on uh, makes it sound as if uh, science, scientists have actually accepted these insane stories. And look at the the same media that covers up Epstein and his list and his Mossad connections and that covers you know that lies about COVID and does the whole pandemic shutdown and and it forces the vaccines. The same media that lies about Zionist power and and just all of it. So. And so many yeah, people yeah. So, are skeptical of this. Is, is, so I'm sorry. So many right. people are skeptical of of the official story of 9/11. Like literally, like the, they do polls, and it's like the majority of people almost. Yet it, they've gone from like, oh, that's just YouTube conspiracy stuff to shutting it. They they won't, don't want it allowed anywhere on the internet. 9/11 truth stuff is banned from Facebook, um, uh, YouTube. Literally names it as something that they ban. So you know, scared of the truth. Yeah, it's gotten uh, so much worse, too, over the past uh, maybe five to ten years. Um, just back in, say, uh, oh, t even 2014, uh, for the most part, we could post whatever we wanted on YouTube and discuss all, all these issues. Frankly, honestly, things were used to, to justify the massive crackdown on free speech on the internet. And of course, the biggest issue that they were afraid of was 9-11 truth. That's why Cass Sunstein, Obama's information czar, uh, actually made 9-11 truth his prototypical quote-unquote conspiracy theory for his, his book on the danger of conspiracy theories. It's called Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures. He knew that if the truth about 9-11 gets out, that's all she wrote for the people who happen to be running things. 
And so he you know, basically said that someday we're going to have to outlaw conspiracy theories. But in the meantime, we must cognitively infiltrate conspiracy groups and uh, disable the purveyors of conspiracy theories by cognitively infiltrating them. So that was the approach he laid out in that book. And they have been doing that. But then they're also moving towards outlawing conspiracy theories. They certainly outlawed them from most of the Internet in such a way that the ordinary person who isn't very specific about what they're looking for uh, and on these topics will never encounter any of the dissident uh, approaches to those topics. Right, right. All right, well, let's get into the main topic now, the Abrahamic Conspiracy, your blog here. I've got some um, of your your thoughts on it highlighted, and I wanted to uh, discuss further. Um, first, I want to ask, though, I'm curious, um, you're, you're Muslim. You don't see too many. Usually you think of Muslims, you think of, of Arabs, but you're a, a, a white... Uh, what are you Irish background? I'm not sure. White white uh, yeah. Muslim. Uh, when did you become a Muslim? Were you raised religious or Christian? And what made you become a Muslim? Well, well, first let me correct you and point out that uh, a very small fraction of the world's Muslims are Arab. There are right. uh, maybe two, maybe it's, it used to be two, when I last checked, it was like 200 million Arabs in the world and uh, 1.8 billion Muslims. So that's uh, eight out of every nine Muslims are not Arab. Right. And they're Indonesian, right? That's right most across, of the billions is Indonesians. Well, they're the single largest uh, Muslim majority population in in, uh, in a Muslim majority country. Although there are actually more Muslims in India than in Indonesia, uh, there are large numbers of Muslims in Eastern Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, and especially right across the belt of sort of the Belt and Road Initiative part of the world. That is that kind of middle part of the world where the old Silk Road was. Um, so yeah, we're we're basically all ethnic groups on Earth. There are Native American Muslims. Uh, Islam is starting to spread in Latin America. And so it's really not something that you can associate with any particular racial or ethnic group. And I suppose as an, an Irish, German, uh, there's not Welsh, a lot of white Muslims, uh, Scott, though. That's true. <laughs> right. Well, no, there, there are quite a few white uh, Muslims from Eastern Europe, actually. So uh, and then there are some folks, for instance, my, my wife is Moroccan and one of her brothers uh, looks a lot like you, Adam. in other words, blonde, and he could pass for a Viking. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's probably because that there have been plenty of people from the north who made it down to the Mediterranean in the past and mixed in with local populations. And so the Muslim Muslim world does tend to be a little more mixed than non-Muslim parts of the world because there's been so much trade and, and cultural exchange between these different uh, Muslim parts of the world, but at the same time, there are um, lots of you know Muslims of this or that or the other ethnic group. Practically all ethnic groups on Earth have some Muslims. Mm -hmm. And were you raised religious? And when did you become Muslim? I was raised as a lapsed Unitarian, which is as lapsed as it gets. Uh, my parents dragged me to the Frank Lloyd Wright Unitarian Church maybe two or three times when I was a kid, but they're very uh, secular, materialist-oriented. But I I had some, you know, spiritual, psychic experiences when I was young and knew that uh, the world is... Well, I actually, I was able to directly experience, and as well as intuit, that the material space-time part of the world is just a uh, epiphenomenon and a manifestation of a deeper reality, which we could call the platonic forms, or we ultimately, it's all coming out of the Godhead, right? So anyway, I kind of could get some of that directly uh, when I was young, 
And so I started practicing different forms of meditation and things like that. And then um, when I was, uh, what was it, like uh, 30, mid-30s-ish, I ended up coming to Islam after encountering the thought of a traditionalist. Uh, Rene Ganon, who founded the traditionalist movement, was a uh, traditional Muslim and lived after he, you know, he woke up to the, uh, the travesty of modernity and the truth of traditional religions. He saw that Islam was the best preserved of all the traditional paths of the rest of his life as a traditional Muslim. Okay, so traditional Muslim, raised Unitarian. So Unitarians is like a sect of Christianity that believes that Jesus is not God, right? Because that would violate That's the, right. the, the oneness of God. Exactly. They, they're theologically essentially identical with Islam. So it wasn't that much of a drastic change. And like the Unitarian and Jehovah Witnesses uh, sects, they don't believe that Jesus is divine, which actually makes them more Noahide compliant because the main idol worship aspect of Christianity is saying that Jesus is a deity. He is, a, he is God himself, which in Judaism, traditional Judaism, that's considered um, idol worship. But Yeah, that's, that, that's one area... Yeah, that's one area where, where we Muslims tend to agree with, uh, with the Jews. Um, although, at the same time, we accept Jesus as the one and only true Messiah, born of a virgin, who's coming back uh, in the end times. And the Jews, of course, see him as, uh, you know, the son of a prostitute uh, with, you know, a, ter a terrible, terrible person who's created all of this horrible sort of, you know, anti-Jewish uh, spin-off on their religion. They see him as sa as Satan basically. He is their adversary, Messiah. They believe that he is the reincarnation of Esau, which Esau's guardian angel is Samael or Satan. That's why they have this uh, it, it, Satan is the tempter. He's tempting the Jews towards idol worship. He's also the accuser. Jesus accused the Jews and the Pharisees. He's the persecutor. He, uh, through Christianity, has persecuted the he Jews. He accused them justly. <laughs> well, as Satan does. In fact, uh, Satan and Jesus sit on the right hand uh, of God, and to be the accuser, you must be sinless as well. Uh, uh, because mm -hmm. the prosecutor in the heavenly court is uh is not guilty of any crimes he's sinless and he accuses the jews of uh their crimes but um let's get into this uh article number one i'm sure you just googled my name and found one of the top you know clicked images and found one of the top images but this is uh the not so it doesn't look that bad but not so flattering this is the the picture that canary mission in the jewish groups used to Attack. Oh, no, yeah, it's a, they always put those at the top of the Google results, but I, I didn't think it was too bad. So maybe they, they don't hate you as much as, as you would think they would. <laughs> well, if they would have got one that looked too much worse, it would have, you know, their bias would have shown. Uh -huh. But there you go. But yes, you you linked uh, my video. Rabbis explain the Judeo. I'm sorry, the Abrahamic Judeo takeover conspiracy. And you say here, you think Adam paints with way too broad a brush and his analysis lacks nuance and balance. So so hopefully I can bring you some of that nuance here as we uh, follow up on our, our last talk. Um, in, in what way am I painting with too broad a brush? Because that video basically is just clips of rabbi after rabbi saying that their agenda is to get the whole world to worship their God. So... 
what's too broad about that? Well, uh, I wasn't so much thinking about just that particular video, but about your sort of Abrahamic uh, approach in general. Mm -hmm. And the broad brush, I would say, is lumping together all forms of Jewish messianic millenarianism, which are, in fact, uh, very, very different from each other and often at war with each other. For example, Marxism is a form of Jewish-inspired messianic millenarianism that, in most ways, is radically opposed to Zionism, which is another extremist form of radical messianic millenarianism that's a spinoff of Judaism. And both Marxism and Zionism uh, are somewhat different from the satanic, uh, freemasonic, uh, black magical uh, spinoffs of, uh, of of Jewish messianic millenarianism coming out of people like Shabtai Zvi, although, of course, that did inspire Zionism. Marxism, not so much, I think, although perhaps the revolt against God uh, started there. So anyway, these different manifestations. Uh, and, and finally, we should say that, that Judaism is a lot more than just uh, this messianic millenarianism. There's all kinds of stuff going on uh, in the Jewish community among the various types of, of uh, the rabbis, the various thinkers, various identify as Jewish or now the center of gravity of the Jewish community. So there's all of this stuff going on, much of it radically opposed to these other things going on. And it seems to me that what you've done is you've kind of lumped all of this behind a certain like, you know, Chabad um, approach to the Messianic millenarian issue. And I, I think the Chabad approach is just has very little to do with Marxism. It even has not all that much to do with Zionism. It has, uh, I'm not sure how much it has to do with uh, Shabtai Zvi and Satanism. Uh, so, and, and it's certainly, the, all that stuff has very little to do with the uh, the, the universalist uh, monotheisms, which, you know, basically Christianity and Islam. So I, I see lots of difference and nuance here, and it seems like you kind of relentlessly focus on this Chabad style of Messianic Jewish millenarianism as a kind of a world takeover plot in a way that strikes me as, as like lumping too much. Okay, well, here, here's some nuance. I, I've always acknowledged that it's not a, you know, one faction. It's not one monolithic force. There's many different sects of varying degrees of Judaism. There's the they're reform, conservative, orthodox, ultra-orthodox. But Chabad Lubavitch is, it's, it's really kind of indisputable. Even Jews and, uh, you know, all types of uh, people will admit this, that, that Chabad is the most influential and powerful group in Judaism. Most Jews, even secular Jews, look at Chabad as that is the traditional Judaism. It's, it's the most uh, international, influential, most money, most uh, power most uh respect their chabad is just everywhere and you also mentioned respect. what what i don't know about respect i mean i think the the liberal jewish community which the liberal secular part which is the dominant part mm -hmm. thinks that chabad is a bunch of nutball extremists well i wouldn't agree that, that this this is one of the things that we disagree on is uh, we'll, we'll get there later uh, in the article but another point you made is that um you said like there's more to Judaism than like the messianic millennialism, but like 
I see Judaism as like Torah Messiah. The Messiah messianic idea is like the foundation of Judaism. I'm pretty sure all sects believe still that there is a Messiah, Moshiach to come. Most most of them are going to say he's a real life political leader that's going to you know reestablish Israel, bring peace to the world, things like this. Some may think, oh, it's just a uh, you know a metaphor for a utopian world or AI or advanced technology or whatever. But the vast majority of Jews, religious Jews, do are waiting for a Messiah. So I do see that as a – and their Messiah is essentially going to rule the whole world and subjugate the nation. So I don't see how you can say that any of this is painting with a, a broad brush. I mean, for, for the sake of explaining things, you know, I, I, I can't throw in every nuance that in there. And this is what I, I see so many people do to, that try to uh, dismiss the things I'm talking about. Um, not you because you're acknowledging much – There's you know, there's some stuff here, but – like other people, this guy Myth Vision, and lots of people, they try to say, these are just fringe rabbis that believe this, and they don't have any power, and a whole bunch of Jews disagree with them. But that doesn't change the fact that these, this is what the scriptures say. This is what the influential rabbis do believe. This is an incredibly powerful, if not the most powerful uh, organization in modern Jewry. So <laughs> that, that's my take on that. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I would meet you halfway there, and and I would admit that there's more truth to your focusing on Chabad than a lot of these other people would probably care to admit. Okay, and 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 I think I would agree with you if you're saying that Judaism as a whole focuses more on Messianic millenarianism than let's say Islam and Christianity do. I think I would tend to agree with that as well. You know, that, that toast, you know, next year in Jerusalem, that's been going on for a long time. It's pretty central to Judaism. In Islam, uh, the Messianic part is is pretty marginalized, really. It's not something that most Muslims and most Muslim thinkers have ever made the center of their approach to the faith. And in Christianity, maybe they're sort of halfway between. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're onto something that, that, and I think that messianic aspect of Judaism, which is, you know, much more uh, of, of a force in the whole sort of Jewish uh, cosmos uh, than a lot of people admit, is I think it, it has had all kinds of really powerful effects in the world through things like the satanic Black magic coming out of Marxian tradition out of Karl Marx, uh, Zionism. I mean, these are huge, powerful movements that emerge primarily from Jewish messianic millenarianism. So I, again, I, I will meet you halfway and admit that it's important and that Chabad is worth paying attention to. Uh, you, you, we play this clip here, and I'll just, I'll just play it so you can see. This is the clip that you're referring to. This is what I play at the beginning of the video. Maybe you shouldn't tell anybody that I said this, but you know all those tropes about Jews controlling the world or at least wanting to control the world? They're actually true. Our goal as Jewish people for the last 3,300 years since the revelation at Sinai has been to control the world. So that's a, it's a great uh, opening clip about them controlling the world. And then, yes, he goes on to explain the context of what he means there, which is what my whole the, the context of my whole video, that they're trying to control the world via their God and their religions and their myths, which, you know, um, birth Christianity and Islam. That That's what the whole theme of the video is. And in the rest of the clip. So as you ask here, 
is this clip taken out of context? No, no, it really isn't. This is the context. I'll, I'll play the rest of it right now. He says, oh, you know, our biblical idea of bringing peace to the world and worshiping one God and following all our laws and stuff like that. Uh, yes, I did use it as attention grabbing, just like he did. This proceed relative benign explanation. This is, you see, I don't think it's a benign explication though i think the idea of them being chosen to have the goyim all the flesh all the goyim worship their god the god that chose them i see that as nefarious i see that as not a uh, noble idea they may think it's noble that they're bringing morality to the goyim but it's at the end of the day that is the abrahamic judeo conspiracy is to get the whole world believing in their myths worshiping their god but here's the rest of the clip and the vision that we have for controlling this world is it would become a place of love care kindness no war no conflict no envy no jealousy this is the messianic age that he's explaining when the messiah comes no war supposed peace but really that's imposing the noahide laws and destroying anybody that doesn't want to obey them what they mean by shalom by peace and awareness of a higher authority connection to god good awareness of a higher authority that that's the yahweh that's what they mean that you have the 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 noahide laws which you we talk about in this article also the number one is no idol worship and worship the the one true god which is interpreted by the rabbis as their god that's what they're going to enforce goodness charity all the wonderful values that judaism stands for in fact when, when we control the world the mundane realities become holy realities everything is meaningful see when they're in charge everything will be holy and meaningful so it's so the the point i just wanted to make is that that's actually not out of context but it was used mm. as a attention getter but it's yeah, well, but, but you're, you are, uh, you know, offering an inter- a negative interpretation when actually what he's saying, if you just accept his words, is not doesn't necessarily have to be interpreted that way. That is, uh, well, you know, well, he means that it, peace and still... understanding and love and and everybody feeling a connection with God and so on and so forth. Well, who wouldn't want that? That that part is kind of banal in in its obvious goodness. And yeah. so, it, you know, if you're if you're going to come in and then try try to say, well, actually, it's all very nefarious. Yeah, you can say that, but you're you know, I, I, if you if he came on here to talk with you, I don't think he would agree with you. Well, they portray their whole religious agenda as you know healing the world as you know trying to make a messianic utopia but i wouldn't argue they may uh, advertise it as a noble good thing but i i disagree the whole world uh, uh helping them fulfill their prophecies by the whole world worshiping them and then i go in with the very next clip which back- basically says the exact same thing the vision is that jerusalem should become a center of the world political center but more important a center of the word of god a center of the connection between between humanity and god we will rebuild the third temple we will do animal okay so it's still it's still the same context as ruling the world with the torah having uh, influencing the world through religion that's kind of the theme so in that regard it's definitely in uh perfect context there hold on why is this not going away i'm a little frozen there it is okay next point here and and just so you guys know he he agrees with quite a bit in here and he also uh, uh 
expands on some of the things I'm saying, saying he's also concerned. So, uh, but I only highlighted the parts where we disagree so we could uh, get further uh, discussion. Um, okay, so that clip, the political center of the world, but we shouldn't forget that Israel is primarily the project of secularist and atheist, not religious Jews. See, this is something that I talk about all the time on my channel, and I so strongly disagree. Zionism would not exist if not for Judaism. The whole You mentioned it yourself, the prayer that they've had uh, every year on Passover, next year in Jerusalem, the Tisha B'Av, their, their saddest day, their saddest holiday where they mourn the destruction of the two temples. They're obsessed with returning to the land after the exile and rebuilding the temple and uh, having their messianic age with their Messiah. So... I don't sure there were some secular Jews uh, involved. They kind of tried to portray it as secular at some times, but even Christians, since as early as the 1500s, there's writings of them saying we need to return the land, the Jews to the land of Israel, so Jesus can return, so the prophecies are fulfilled. The Gaon of Vilna, the top Kabbalah rabbi in the 1700s, was a religious Zionist and Kabbalist who set up missions for Jews to go resettle the land and colonize the land as well. Um, There was the Ben-Gurion, who many people say, oh, he's the first president. He was secular. He may have been secular, but he was still deeply motivated by the Jewish identity, which comes from the Torah. And you know, his famous quote that he said, all armies will be abolished. There will be no more worlds. There will be a world alliance, a one world government in Jerusalem. The United Nations will build a shrine of the prophets to serve the federated union of all continents. This will be the seat of the Supreme Court of mankind to settle all controversies among the federated continents as prophesied by Isaiah. So wouldn't you agree that Ben Gurion is motivated by the prophets? Well, I think he, he was. I think I think he was kind of perhaps you know inspired a bit by uh, by the Torah, although I don't think he read it that much. No, I think he was basically a secular person, but he was a politician, and so he would you know speak in these kinds of highfalutin terms. And the first highfalutin terms to use would be these kinds of uh, of things drawn from his his tribe's tradition. But no, he was an atheist and a secularist. He didn't believe in God, and neither did Theodore Herzl, and neither did the vast majority of the people responsible for founding Israel. They just they don't believe in God. They're totally uh, atheist, materialist, modern people. And so those those people were clearly the majority of the original Zionists. And it was very clear that right up until World War II, the vast majority of religious Jews opposed the creation of Israel, which what they saw correctly as an atheist project. It's true there were religious Jews that were opposed to creating the state of Israel. They believed the Messiah had to come. They believed different doctrine that the Messiah had to come and then lead them back. But that was never a universal belief. There's always different opposing views. It it was the majority belief. There was a vast majority belief until World War II. the, the, The reason, the whole concept for Zionism, the name Zionism, is it wouldn't exist it wouldn't have manifested there would have been no strong desire to return to the land if not for these uh for the torah basically and for the prophecies and the reason that some of these secular jews that were involved with this did appeal to religious so much is because there was a lot of religious people that wanted this to happen for religious uh purposes and um that's true you can see here this is 
on the Temple Institute's website, the Temple Institute about rebuilding the temple here, they have a part here about Rabbi Kalisher's letter to the Rothschilds concerning the purchase of the Temple Mount. He basically said, the Rothschild, you can be our Messiah, buy up the Temple Mount from the Sultan of uh, the Ottomans, and so we can rebuild our temple and return to the land, and they wouldn't sell, so that's why I believe wars were needed. This was 1836 that top rabbis were sending letters to the Rothschilds asking them to help fulfill the prophecies. Um, yeah, so there there are obviously some religious Jews who have been willing to embrace this uh, secular atheist or even Satanist Zionist project, which is God, and doing it ourselves. It's like the old uh, hippie poster of the vulture saying, uh, you know, screw it, I'm going to kill something. <laughs> this grows out of the... Uh, satanic strain of millenarian messianic Judaism uh, founded by Shabtai Zvi and uh, Abarbanel is a key figure. Abarbanel was you know, one of the first who was beginning to imagine having the Jewish people do their own return without having God sort of pick them up and carry them over the, across the ocean and set them down uh, and have the lion lie down with the lamb, which has always been the, the majority position. So, yeah, there, there were some uh, people who were still sort of religious Jews who took these heretical, satanic, materialist, uh, humanist kinds of positions that we're going to go take back Palestine ourselves. But ultimately, the vast majority of religious Jews opposed this and continued to oppose it, again, until World War II. And the shock effect of World War II, the Holocaust story and all of that, had everything to do with suddenly making Zionism acceptable to the majority of religious Jews. I do agree with that. I don't think that uh, well, without Christianity and Christian Zionism, Israel wouldn't exist. And I think without um, the uh, you know the burnt offering, atonement, sacrifice, and the the victim, the ultimate martyrdom, uh, you know, according to their views, there wouldn't be a Israel either. So I definitely agree mm -hmm. on that. Um, here's the letter from Kalisher. He said he wanted to rebuild the temple and restore the temple service, the animal sacrifices. Um, oh, that's modern times talking about the Rothschilds. So it, you know, and then when Lord Balfour did the Balfour declaration, he was a Christian Zionist and he did it to Rothschild. And then it seems like it was the, and it wasn't even all the Rothschilds either. It was some, some of the family, but we have the Rothschild family at Chabad.org, their website. They have a, a section here, a quote, mayor Anshel was offered, if you would accept my religion, I would gladly appoint you to a high position in my government when I became ruler. So Rothschild was offered to, I guess, convert to Christianity, maybe Islam. He said, that is out of the question, said the Rothschild. I will never give up my faith for anything in the world, he concluded proudly. So it seems to me like there well, is... I would take that with a grain of salt, Adam. You know, I, I tend to agree with Barry Shamish and his his rabbinical sources who argue that the Rothschild family is uh, essentially part of a uh, satanic and demonic uh, cult stemming from the work of Shabtai V, the false messiah, whose work culminated in the, in the year 1666. And uh, my colleague at Veterans Today, Gordon Duff, who has a lot of very interesting uh, claims about various things, uh, argues that he, he believes, and this is based partly on st uh, classified stuff that he encountered when he was with the CIA, that the 
uh, Rothschild family has an infestiture ceremony in which those members who are selected to carry on the quote-unquote religious, i.e. demonic work, are infested with a demon, which becomes their spiritual guide. And that demon uh, apparently has the ability to sort of transcend space and time and operate in the what we Muslims call the ghraib or the, the uh, hidden dimension of reality. And uh, these demonic forces uh, help them achieve their ends. That would certainly explain how they were able to know before anybody else uh, that Napoleon had been defeated and uh, grab up a big pile of money on the London Stock Exchange through that particular uh, maneuver. So in any case, yeah, I I don't believe the Rothschilds are normal, uh, traditional Jews by any means. And I tend to believe what Barry Chamish, the late great Barry Chamish uh, said, as well as the various rabbis that he depends upon, that the Rothschilds are indeed practitioners of a uh, satanic uh, slash atheist, uh, quote unquote, religion. I see a lot of people um, have a tendency to do this. They try to say, like, it, it's not the Jews or the Torah that's the problem. It's the it's the Satanist or it's the, the Talmud. Like, you referred to Israel's, like, the Satanic uh, Zionist state, the Rothschilds, you know, Satanic. Maybe they were influenced with the Illuminati and Jacob Frank. I don't rule that out. I haven't seen so- super solid evidence on that. But... To say that it's like Satanists are the bad guy, in my view, kind of gives a pass to just like the the Abrahamic agenda. And and how can you say that Jews returning to the land and rebuilding the temple is satanic when these are all the prophecies laid out in uh, in the Bible? It's they're following the Bible Torah script, the blueprint, and it, it, so God wants a satanic state to be created. That's part of God's plan. If it's part of God's plan that he wants the, sat- the satanic state to be created, I'd say it's God's plan, not Satan's plan. And, that, and, and Yahweh's the bad guy here, and Satan's his, his, uh, his angel, his, his, uh, who works for God, basically. That's the way I see well, it. Well, yeah, that's one, that's one way of reading uh, a lot of the Torah. And, yeah, I actually I understand uh, why you would see things that way based on the fact that you grew up in a Christian culture, or at least a post-Christian culture, that has uh, a lot of tendencies to put the Old Testament up on a pedestal as scripture that's equal to, or even in some cases they see it as superior to the New Testament, not to mention the Quran, which tells us that uh, these earlier revelations have been corrupted uh, by human hands and human minds, and so we shouldn't accept them as inerrant divine scripture. But our culture uh, that we grew up in has tended to uh, put the Old Testament on a pedestal where it doesn't belong. I fully agree with some of your critiques of the Old Testament, and indeed, the Old Testament does uh, give us some pictures of Yahweh conspiring with Satan against Job, for example, in ways that seem highly immoral. And many of Yahweh's actions in the extant Torah Oral Testament are obviously uh, highly immoral, and these stories can only be taken as legendary uh, literary allegories of various things. It's possible to interpret the Old Testament uh, in ways that are 
I suppose, morally acceptable, but you certainly wouldn't accept it as straightforward, inerrant scripture uh, unless you're a complete lunatic. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a huge problem with the Torah or Old Testament. There's a huge problem with those Christians who put it on the same level or higher than their New Testament. And uh, one of the advantages of Islam is that we're very clear in Islam that these earlier scriptures, and particularly the Torah, have been corrupted by human hands, human minds, and especially in this case, human tribal egos. And they should not be bowed down to and uh, accepted as inerrant scripture. And indeed, the Quran makes this clear. And I think Christians should see this too, because the God of the New Testament is profoundly different from Yahweh of the Old Testament. And the attempts to try to reconcile them have never been very convincing. And ultimately, I, I think that what we have to see is that the, the Old Testament is the record of a henotheistic group. That is a group that has not fully achieved the transition to fully universal monotheism. And they're worshiping their tribal idol in a world of many different tribal idols. And their tribal idol is urging them to war with all these other tribes and all their idols. And uh, that tribe, as those people, uh, the, the people who refused to accept uh, universal monotheism and become Christians or Muslims, those are the people that today we call Jews. But uh, if you want to call, you know, all Middle Eastern monotheists, you know, as one group, which I think you could, Abrahamic peoples, of the Abrahamic peoples, uh, the vast majority of them are universal monotheists. And only a tiny retrograde minority are these tribal henotheists or people who have not made it yet to universal monotheism. So I think that's the real problem with Judaism and with the Torah, is that this is a group that has rejected the revelation of Jesus, peace upon him, the revelation of Muhammad, peace upon him, and they've stuck with this uh, this this Bronze Age uh, legendary uh, story of their henotheistic god uh, telling him to go out and smash and destroy other people's gods and steal their money and so on and so forth. This is the end of part one of my conversation with Adam Green. Stay tuned for part two. This is the This is not what I came here for, my friend.